Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 629 of the podcast and it is Wednesday 22nd of June 2022 as I record this. In this in-between episode, I'm talking to thriller author Andrew Main about AI and writing, specifically GPT-3, a language model released by OpenAI where Andrew now works. So I've been reading Andrew's thriller novels for years, and when he started blogging about GPT-3 a while back, I've been following his blog and his experiments, and I was super excited to be able to discuss this with him. We talk about what AI is capable of in terms of writing at the moment, and where it might be going. How to use AI tools to accomplish your creative vision through the right kind of prompting. Plus, an attitude of curiosity that very important for us to retain. Some of the problems with AI models and how OpenAI is trying to combat those. Both Andrew and I are positive and upbeat about the possibilities for creators to use these tools, but we're also aware of the potential issues and discuss the need for labelling generated words and art. On that note, I'll link to the Alliance of Independent Authors' Ethical Use of AI in the show notes, which I contributed to and is why I label my own use. So related to this discussion is a news item in recent weeks where a Google AI researcher decided that one of Google's language models, Lambda, was actually sentient. Now, there's been a lot of discussion over this in the AI community, but in my mind, it illustrates the immense power of language models and the growing ability to generate emotional and seemingly intelligent writing if you prompt the machine in the right way. This is why it's important that we as writers need to engage with these tools and advocate for labelling of generated words and art, as well as make sure our voices as original human creators are heard as the tools develop. So I don't want us to shy away from this. I want us to engage with it. So if you want to know more about how you can use AI for writing, images, marketing, translation, audio, as well as the ethical use of AI, problems and opportunities, and how to retain that attitude of curiosity, check out my course, The AI Assisted Author, at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. You can also find more episodes and resources on AI and other futurist topics at thecreativepen.com forward slash future. Right, let's get into the discussion with Andrew. Andrew Main is the multi-award nominated and internationally best-selling author of thrillers. He's also a magician, a magic consultant, and author of over 50 books on magic. He invented an underwater stealth suit for shark diving, and he works with OpenAI as a science communicator. He also has books for authors, including How to Write a Novella in 24 Hours and co-host the podcast Weird Things. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, You do so many things, but we are actually going to talk about AI today. But I wanted to first ask you, with this background in magic and also creativity, because you've written so many books, how did you become interested in AI? Well, ever since I was a little boy, I was really interested in 
science and entertainment and everything in between. And I loved robots when I was a kid, and I'd build robots from science fairs and stuff. I would use coffee cans and little motors and things I pulled from toys to do that. And then when we got our first personal computer, I would try to build little chat bots and ask it questions, have it respond. And then I got kind of bit by the magic bug when I was in high school because I lived in South Florida and we had a lot of cruise ships there. And that seemed like a really cool way to see the world. And that became more of just a, a passive hobby with AI and artificial intelligence. But then you sometimes you keep coming back to things. And I had friends that were in, active in it. And I knew some people were actually been some pioneers in it that I used to sort of just pester with questions and stuff. But it was actually just a few years ago when I got back into... I was just realized that programming was something that I never really took seriously. Like I always knew a little bit about programming and I thought, why don't I just go learn a programming language? And you know, the older you get, it's helpful to just keep learning things. So I started to learn to program and then I found myself involved with doing a special for discovery channel for shark week, where I was going to try to build a suit to make myself invisible to sharks as you explained at the top of the show, which is dumb, but it sounded <laughs> like a fun thing to do. And I realized that I had talked to shark scientists and it explained to me, Sharks have an incredible array of senses. And when you're down there, you're at a huge disadvantage because we're tree climbing monkeys in the bottom of the ocean surrounded by apex predators. And I thought, how can I help myself out? And I thought, one of the things I could do is try to build a system where I could see 360 all around me and then use maybe like image recognition or something to tell me, hey, there's a shark behind you. Because the thing I found out about great whites is they're ambush hunters and they can tell where you're looking. And if you're not looking at them, then they're going to sneak up on you. And if you're not looking at them and they're sneaking up on you, you don't see them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of open source code for like vision systems and creating software recognized stuff. And there's a lot of helpful tutorials. And I started off as just a complete novice in it, but I got fascinated by it because as I was learning how you create something to detect an image or train it to recognize something like a shark, I was talking to shark scientists who were explaining to me that, hey, you know, one of the things that's interesting about shark vision is that they don't see you inside of the shark cage. They actually see the outline of the cage. And something clicked for me because we talk about sharks having such incredible senses, a sense of smell. They see as better than, you know, probably see as well or as better than we do. They have these ability to sense electrical fields. They can sense vibrations. All of this data is huge, but they have small brains relatively compared to, let's say, an upper primate. And when that person said that to me, I'm like, oh, that's an algorithm used to reduce the complexity of the information so it can make a decision. And I'm like, oh, a great white is a collection of algorithms, as we are too. And that particular one they described is very similar to something I was looking at at vision research called a HAR-like features, which is dealing with like detection of edges. And that was when one thing connects between something and something else. And I mean, that's kind of the basis I think we as writers is we love to either make connections or find connections. And we see that connection, just something triggers in our head. And that to me was, oh, this is fascinating. This is really what artificial intelligence is about, is like this optimization. And so I started getting more into artificial intelligence, learning how to build little small neural networks. And neural networks is basically kind of like our, our brain works, but it's like just a simple arrangement of, we call them parameters, but it's basically if this, then that kind of thing, but just in a sort of statistical way that it's trained. It was just fascinating because you'd start to see results. I built a little image generator model from some code I found online and I could like, ah, oh, that kind of looks like a goat. Oh, that kind of looks like something. And it just was just a wonderful awakening for me to realize how cool this was and happening at this time with artificial intelligence has just expanded so much. And that's where the interest came from. 
Yeah, I love that. But let's get specific around the AI tools for writers. So I've mentioned GPT-3 on this show before, mm-hmm. but perhaps you could just give an overview from your perspective and what other AI tools like Doll-E from uh, OpenAI as well, what is it like right now for writers? Well, it's, it's a very exciting period. And, and I was very fortunate because two years ago when OpenAI came out with GPT-3, I got invited as a creative to play around with this. And GPT-3 was an AI that was trained by taking a tremendous amount of text data, and they built the fifth largest supercomputer in the world to build this. And then when they got this, they weren't sure what were its capabilities. And so I was invited to sort of play around and start experimenting GPT-3. First, kind of, because they knew I was a writer. They didn't know that I how nerdy I was about AI. So for me to be able to interact with the system for hours on end to see what it could do was exciting. So I, I helped write a lot of the examples that you'll see if you get access to GPT-3, because then I end up, now I work for them, but like I started creating examples and stuff and exploring because I found that as a writer, we're very used to the world of words and how words are presented. And that kind of was helpful because this was a point at which AI understood a bit about structure, understood a lot about grammar, understood a lot about if you say what TLDR means, what that means, or if you say in conclusion. And I found that it was really, really helpful one was you could use it as an amplifier. You could start a little character description. It could help make the description a little more interesting. For nonfiction writing, it was really helpful because you could write some things and then it might help you continue your thought. And then you could just write in conclusion and it could sum up things for you. It actually affected the way that I write when I write non when I write like uh, nonfiction, for instance, like I start everything with a TLDR right now because watching a model take a bunch of information and compress it down to the most important points made me think about, okay, when I start writing, and this is obvious to a lot of people for me, like I really need to start from there and then always look back to that and not deviate. So both for writing and learning how it worked affected me. So you mentioned a few things there. You mentioned amplifying and expanding things or continuing thoughts. And Mm -hmm. I feel like So I've used it too, so I get what you mean. But many authors who hear AI and writing, they think that you just click a button and out pops a novel. And you have written a blog post, will AI ever write a novel? So where are we with it right now? And I guess, how do we drive it? Because you've also written about prompt engineering. So... My personal belief is, yeah, of course, it will be. It, it's going to be able to write novels, and, and people will go like, ah, oh, but it won't know human experience. Like, no, it'll be able to read a million biographies, and it'll know human experience deeper than any of us know. But it still comes back down to is it, that doesn't negate the value of writers. I think it actually amplifies it because we there are systems that create really good music right now. We take the singer Billie Eilish. She's incredibly talented, and part of what makes her music have value to us is her story. She and her brother composing music in their parents' home trying to make their own sound, not being people that were, you know, the industry would have picked to say, you get to be the superstars, but they did it on their own, and then they became famous. And that emotion is based in part the fact that they're real people. And there's going to be places for, like, there's fake, like, Japanese digital pop stars and stuff. There's going to be a place for that, but there's always, I'm always going to want to sit down and read stories. Sometimes I might want just a computer story, but I like to know that there was a person who wrote this. I like to know this was created by somebody because, Writing is about choices and creativity is about choices. And these tools can give you a lot of options, but you still have to make choices. Whether it's GPT-3 saying, do you want this character to be this or do you want it to be that? Or for you deciding where you want to take it. And that's what we see at Dolly. Dolly is our system that generates images and they're incredible. Like I have just ordered a couple to have hanging in my place here because I just love the look of them. I can tell the difference between an artist who uses Dolly and just somebody who just says, oh, a cool rabbit or this. 
artists bring more to it, and these tools really are amplifiers. One more example to think about is, imagine in 1826, you showed a portrait artist the first photograph. They might have been frightened. Oh, no, what happens to my industry? And it was disruptive, but now imagine back then, 1826, trying to explain what does somebody like James Cameron do for a living? And it's incomprehensible, but that field of art, the number of people who were able to make a living by art increased dramatically. The value we placed on that actually went up a lot. I've had friends be like, oh, well, Mozart got along fine without like a commercial business. I'm like, Mozart was supported by you know, the royalty. Like he was the one dude that got that opportunity. You know, we live in a world with millions of artists and opportunities that come and go, but this technology can amplify that. If you have that creativity, don't be scared by it. Be excited by it. Mm, yeah, and I, I'm definitely with you. I'm an optimist about it. But it's interesting there. So you talked about there a person wrote this or an artist created this, but we can use the tools and it amplifies the value. So if we think about a sort of a continuum from zero to 100%, so 0% AI to 100% AI, this is the issue. I see, And people argue with me about this. So I'm wondering about what you think. So where is the point where it becomes more AI created? Or here's a human example, someone like James Patterson, uh, who co-writes with so many people, mm -hmm. and he does these outlines, right, but a lot of his co-writers do the bulk of the words. So they get a co-written name on the book cover. So if an, an author has an idea and then uses something like GPT-3 to, to generate most of the words, who, who, you know, do we have to talk about this in the publishing industry? Do we just put the author's name on? What, where do you think this continuum goes, like? Yes. Well, and to understand OpenAI, by the way, OpenAI, we're a research organization. We're, we're for-profit owned by a nonprofit, all right? And the goal of the nonprofit is to de develop benevolent artificial general intelligence, an AGI. AGI is basically described as something that's as capable or more capable than a human, but more efficient to do certain things. And we want to make sure that AI is helpful overall. There would be disruptions, but we want it to be a benefit, a net benefit for all of humanity. And we look at how things might be disruptive. So right now, what we do with Dolly with that image generator, we put a little logo on there that's a little, a little color bars to show that this was it's our signature. And we tell everybody using this, you need to tell people an AI made this. You need to tell everybody that an AI created this. Because we're trying to set a precedent to say, like, you should tell your audience when it's AI or maybe assisted by AI, et cetera, going forward. I mean, the, the danger gets into what does assisted by AI mean now? Because if you open up Google Docs and you start to write something, it will do completion for you. And it uses a model, not as capable of GPT-3, but a really good model. That's AI assistive now. And so that's sort of where it gets gray is how much. But if you're just turning out a thing and it's substantial, the most of the work was done by an AI – Probably a good idea to tell your audience, you know, I think that because people are going to want authenticity and sometimes it won't matter, but sometimes it will. Yeah, well, actually, I did a short story last year, which I self-published and I put in the back a little in my author's note, I did a AI declaration. And I'm also encouraging people to do this, but I don't think most people are doing it. And you're indie, but also traditionally published. So how are you tackling this with, because uh, I think you mentioned on, on your blog that you're using some passages from AI in your next traditionally published <laughs> novel. Yeah, I, I actually think I probably had the first GPT-3 content published in a book, but it was it's a part of a book where it's a computer talking. And so that's what I did is I said, it's this thing. And then they realized, hey, it's a computer talking. I'm like, yeah, it was actually. And there was sort of a race for people like, oh, I want to do a whole book. It's like, well, are they going to be good? Are they going to be good? And eventually they will be. I think they'll probably be exceptional. 
but I think that as far as in the publishing industry, you know, you look at the the state of it now is that they they look to see does an what is an author how many Twitter followers do you have you know what's your Facebook count and all this and I think that. It's sad for me because I think – I mean I was very fortunate because having done television stuff, I, those things are good for me. But I think if like I was trying to make a name for myself as an author today versus where I was 10 years ago, uh, it's a different landscape. I guess my point is like I don't know how publishers are going to handle the AI side of things. You know, Would some publishers, if they can just have a small group of writers, a stable stuff working with AI, do it and just turn out a bunch of public books? Maybe that will happen. Will there the quality be there? I don't know. Well, and this is so. This is what I'm very interested in because, of course, as authors, we license our rights to publishers, and there are some imprints of some famous publishing houses that will have a lot of books that uh, you know are within a genre-specific template. It's hard not to name mm-hmm. names, but you know what I mean. Within yeah. certain genres, there are you know templates that you could use, and if you had, and many of the publishers do, a huge corpus of copyright work that they own that they could train a model with could they not generate these books uh that do satisfy readers and as you know quality is in the eye of the beholder of the reader so what we think is quality might not be what other people do for example so the limit is right now when you have a gpt3 or you have a model generate your text for you there's a thing called the token size and basically a token is how it takes words it converts them into a numerical value and so it's really it's all math you would same with images everything else so GPT-3 has this – it can take in about, let's say, 3,500 words or generate 3,500 words that relate to each other. So if you did chapter one and had it generate 3,500 words and then you did chapter two, it'll have no idea what was in chapter one because that's too many words. You could do a little summary or a little ways or little hacky things you can try to do to get it there. GPT-3 and other models – and GPT-3 has like double what everybody else has for like this. The standard's like maybe 2,000 tokens, Right. None of these models have ever read a book in its entirety. None of them have ever read a book and read at the top and then read at the end and, and are able to tell you that. They can tell you, they'll, you'll say, oh, no, this AI told me about this about a book. Like, it read somebody's review of that book. There are models for summarization, and I built some of these that will take it and condense it down. Uh, you'll still see that they struggle with, like, an example is, like, it might read Harry Potter, and then at the beginning of Harry Potter, you know, Harry's told his parents died in a car accident, which we know, spoiler alert, it's not true. Voldemort killed them. But you don't find that out till the very end. A model that might just read things in parts would tell you, oh, yeah, his parents are killed in a car accident. Like, no, no, that got reversed later on. So right now, for you know, the shorter-term future, an AI can't write a whole book because it doesn't understand the beginning, middle, and end of a long-form novel. That will change eventually. But I think we as writers can start thinking about, you know, what does the novel mean? Like, I write series. Like, like I, that's been – I found that I like to do it, and the market's really good for that. But writing a series is challenging because I have to remember the names of everybody and everything else like that. And I would love to be able to use AI to help me keep track of all that stuff. And I would love to be able to write on a much bigger canvas too. And I think that's the thing to think about is like, one uh, – it can shorten the time you write. You could increase your output. It could let you spend more time making cool choices and less time having to do things that you don't want to do, revisions, etc. And then I think overall can make us all better writers. 
Yeah, and I totally agree. And I, I think thinking of it as a tool rather than another writer is, is the much mm-hmm. better way. But I just wanted to circle back on prompt engineering because when I started to play this, so I'm not a programmer, so I did get access to the beta for GPT-3, but I now use PseudoWrite, which mm-hmm. is like a front end on GPT-3. And many writers listening won't be programmers. But what I discovered very quickly was that you had to drive it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I believe you actually use the term prompt engineering, which is, so how do we drive it in the best way in order to get the best results? So a thing that I think is interesting, it even alludes, like I'll see research papers come out talking about prompt design. And I think that even not to be too critical, but sometimes they really miss the point of what these real these models really are. And I talk about, you know, there is a base level, they're a prediction machine, but they're emulators. And to emulate something, they have to know what they need to do. If you ask one of these models, like how many fish live in a wallet, which is an absurd question, it might give you an answer because it's trying to find some sort of rationale to this question and will answer something. It's like if I wrote that on a piece of paper and slipped it under your door and it said, how many fish live in a wallet? You might be like, I don't know, one? Okay, whatever. And then, but if you tell the model, hey, if this question makes sense, answer it. If it's illogical, say illogical. Literally say that at the top. Literally tell it that and then go question, how many fish live in a wallet? And answer, it's more likely to say, wait, this is illogical. This doesn't make any sense. And then if you say, if I have $5 my wallet, how much do I have my wallet? Then it's, oh, yeah, $5. And so telling it what you need, and it's an example of why you need to direct it. If you wanted to do a style, if you say write a news article, and I, oh, write an article about blank, well, if you were a writer who was a, a contract writer, you would know the publication you were writing for, right? You would know the topic, you'd know the audience, you'd know all of these things. And so sometimes people go like, oh, I asked to write an article and it wasn't any good. I'm like, I guarantee you, if you just threw that out to a bunch of random people with no other information, it wouldn't be very good. But when you give it more background to say, if you say, oh, give me a starting paragraph about this topic for the Atlantic magazine, then it's going to know, oh, I know the style, it knows the narrative, and then it's going to follow through on that in a better way. So that's the thing to think about. You have to give it enough information to do what you want. It doesn't read minds. I did some examples where I used one of our newer models to create games just by using text descriptions. I actually got it to make Wordle without any code by giving it like five instructions, but I had to explain the rules of the game. And I had some people look at this like, oh, well, you had to write all the stuff to get that game. I'm like, well, yeah, I knew what I wanted to get. If I just said create a game, it could have given me tic-tac-toe. I had to be specific about what I want, and that's the same thing with the models. You need to direct it with, give it the same sort of input you would, you know, somebody you were eager to help, maybe kind of a, a really smart middle schooler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you've built an app thing, haven't you, where you can chat with a particular uh, type of character as such. Were you still working on that? I, I, I built a lot. Before I went to work for OpenAI, I built a lot of demo applications and, and was kind of helping them figure out, like, how do you release stuff? So I think the first thing that was like the first release was I, I built a thing where you could email historical figures. And you would just basically like, you know, send an email to their name. I forgot. You send an email to their name, whatever, and ask a question. And you just anybody, Ben Franklin, whatever. And it was fun. It was this cool demo. You'd email them and they'd email you back. I don't have that up and running anymore because now our guidelines are uh, we want to be more protective and because we could have written Pol Pot, you know, some yeah. awful people in history, which now we'd probably be like, ah, if we want to make sure that somebody is checking these responses first before we invite somebody to commit atrocities. So 
uh, and part of the reason we do that too is people go like, well, how dangerous are these models or whatever? One, we don't know. Like, like I, I think that uh, we err on the side of being a little overcautious because maybe these models really aren't potentially that harmful or dangerous, but the late ones that are coming are going to be way more powerful. And that's when you got to be careful. When you have basically the ability to type in a request to a super intelligent person that maybe doesn't have the same sort of ethical boundaries we do, that could have scary implications. Like, oh, create a computer virus to mine Bitcoin on everybody I know's, you know, computer. Oh, Systems are going to be able to do that if they're not. I mean, that's going to be a thing, you know, if we're not careful. So I'm like, I so I tell people like, oh, why are you so restrictive? It's like, well, we, we want to get in that habit now. We'd rather be a little restrictive early than a little restrictive too late. Yeah, and I, I do urge people to go and look at OpenAI, the website, and there's the mission there and statements. And I really appreciate how careful it's being. However, I would say there's always going to be issues. Technology, it's that double-edged sword, isn't it? But you mentioned there uh, the responsibility in the output, but these models are trained on data. And this is one of the, the things I think about a lot, which is most of the data apparently it's trained on are out of copyright books. So I, I believe they're not trained on work in copyright because of the issues of licensing. But of course, most of the books out of copyright are written by dead old white men <laughs> in English, probably mostly of a Christian persuasion. And so I feel like to address diversity and try and issues of bias, we actually need to train models on works in copyright by far more diverse writers in the last 75 years of publishing. So how do you think we could figure that out and fix that? Well, yeah, I mean, that one of the solutions we do right now is we have a series of models called, called our instruct models, where the original GPT-3 Da Vinci was trained on a large amount of text, and then it just does what it does. And that is the amazing part about it, too. We didn't we ever trained it to be a chatbot. It just figured it out. It figured out all these things, which is awesome and terrifying. <laughs> and so the instruct models are ones where we said, hey, we know people want to perform certain tasks a lot, and they want reliability. So we train those models to be very reliable in what they do. When you train that, you can also say, hey, Let's amplify certain things in the data set. Let's minimize other things. And a, a simple solution, people say, well, just take out all the bad stuff. Well, the problem is if you've ever met a child and you stand next to that child on a street and they look at people and they make observations, uh, children would get canceled very quickly because they don't know any better. They don't <laughs> understand what's an appropriate question or what's not. You know, And that's where if you take all that stuff out of there, you might have a model that's extremely naive about the world. And then it's going to innocently ask you something like, why are you typing so slow? Are you dumb? You know, like, well, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> so that's the challenge is you want to build models, in my opinion, as I express very clear, my opinion, you want to build models that have a lot of knowledge about the world, but also have judgment and have good judgment. And part of things you can do is if you want to make things that are like what we did with Dolly is when we, if we first tested it, if you said, hey, create a bunch of images of scientists, if they were all men, that's not good. Purely just on the basis of being as not a good artistic tool because people are going to want to be able to have a wider variety. So you can make things more steerable and you can say, hey, uh, have it one, try to make sure the model is more diverse in what it represents, but also give you more control. You could say, I want an Indonesian woman scientist working in a lab with two other women as they observe something. You make it controllable so the person has the opportunity to get the output they want. But I guess that is a sort of artificial trying to fix a bias. Whereas if we actually read in, say, the works of 
all writers in different languages across the last 80 years, then that might provide more variety in the training data. And also now I believe we can create synthetic data so we can do different and I'm thinking text, not images, obviously, for training the text models. And then I, I also kind of see this as a way that potentially writers could have data licensing, uh, potentially like, would you like to put your book in this corpus of data that we're training the next model on, for example? Do you think that's just entirely ridiculous? <laughs> no, not at all. No, I would love for us to find ways in which we can do that. And Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, and uh I'm not just saying it's a work there, but Sam's an incredibly thoughtful guy. And he's talked about the point at some date that like if we start training models is to have ways for people to contribute to it and also benefit from it, et cetera, because there's going to be a point when you're just going to need a lot more data and finding that way of making sure that people feel one, that everybody benefits from it, but two, like, yeah, trying to figure out just how we can have it just represent a lot more points of view in a way that just is beneficial. Yeah, and, and I guess the other thing is from a selfish writer viewpoint, like yourself, I've been writing novels for over a decade, and I would just love to train a model with my backlist. And of course, none of us individually can have a backlist big enough to train any model, right? Yeah. But I almost see it as, say, let's say, a group of thriller writers could get together and create their own training data set for a model. And that would give us a far more fine-tuned output. Do you, how oh. far do you think that's possible? Well, actually, right now, we could take all of your books and we could break it into, let's say, paragraph-by-paragraph sections. And we could put it into, we could train, we can fine-tune. So we offer a service where you can fine-tune a model and give it data. You could do that now. It's not going to be able to write a whole book, but if you start writing a passage and wrenching a character, it would probably complete things based upon what it knows. And so for probably doing a paragraph-by-paragraph level, probably possible right now. Oh, okay. So are you thinking about doing that for your books? Um, I've thought about it. I haven't done it. Early on, when I was a writer, they're like, oh, let's train some data. Let's try some stuff. And, and I, I did a little bit of it, but I mean... I'm like the car mechanic whose car is always broken down. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm always pursuing some other shiny new object and stuff. And so I played with it to limit extent to see like, oh, how can do completions and stuff. But that's a, and I've done a lot of like helping other people like train stuff, like people who work in commercial properties and stuff that want to use as writing tools. Like this is how you prepare the data. This is how you do it. But uh, I should probably do it as an experiment to see. I do try to be mindful because I'm a writer, active writer, and I work in AI of just trying to two things in a display that people feel is responsible. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is fascinating. And of course, you do, you span different publishing routes. So you, you are still indie as well as traditional, right? You still self-publish. I haven't self-published anything in a while. Like I do two books a year right now, Thomas and Mercer. And so that kind of keeps me busy because <laughs> of full time at OpenAI and then that, so... Yeah, well, actually, I was going to ask you that because you're this, I would call you a, you a polymath, as in you seem to do a, a hell of a lot of things, you know, an in, inventor and magic and open AI and writing. And so how do you manage your time between, is it a full-time job at open AI and, and also writing and everything? Yeah, I'm full-time at open AI. I, I came on board originally as a contractor and was helping them out with GPT-3 and, like I said before, writing documentation, creating examples. And then I went in with the, I had the title Creative Applications because I just find creative ways you could use it. And it was sort of like 
you have these incredibly brilliant people who get to build things and they, they're constantly having to build them. And I'm like, can I play with them then? And then, so I get the, I get it just sort of take advantage of everybody else's hard work and just play with it and show people cool stuff. So I worked on that for, uh, work with the API team doing that and helping kind of just get the word about, out about it. And then last year I went and I joined up, we have a comms team. We have an incredible team that helps with communications and public relations, et cetera. And, I asked, hey, can I work with you guys to see what this is all about, too? Because I really want to get involved in helping communicate that. So I came on board there, and they gave me the title Science Communicator. So now mm. I do a lot of stuff. Like I'll talk to – if you see – if we want to do a piece with, let's say, some journalists on it, on the models, and they want to get sort of a background, or I do that. I help explain the stuff, and I help try to, as a writer, like how do we communicate this? How do we try to shape the messaging so people understand what we're doing? Well, this is part of your communication. Lots of people listening and very interested. Yeah. And I mean, well, that's another question. So I did apply for the beta and I do have access to that API. But as I said, I'm not a programmer. If So we're recording this June 2022. If people listening want to use GPT-3, how would they go about doing that? Well, what you can do if you go to OpenAI and you sign up for it, what you'll get access to is a there's a lot of technical stuff documentation for if you wanted to code but there's a playground and there's a playground there and you'll get a certain number of credits for free and I don't remember how it is but you can go in there and type things in and just see things what happens give put a little bit of your text see what it does you can go look at the examples and so the playground environment's easy you don't have to code to do it um you'll see knobs like temperature and temperature think of that as randomness how random do you want the response to be zero not random at all set it higher I've got some videos on YouTube where I explain some stuff. I need to do some better quality ones, but I've done a lot of sessions where just explaining that. But anybody can just go there and start playing around with it. And then if they want something more specific, there are different companies that have different writing tools that are based on top of it. But at the basic level, you'll see the GPT-3 model and also our newer model. We have a model called Text Da Vinci, which is if you're doing like technical or like nonfiction, that's really good at giving you concise responses. Mm, yeah, definitely worth playing with. And I got to point out that I picked up on this with GPT-2 and then GPT-3 came mm -hmm. along. And uh, I now kind of talk about it as GPT-X because <laughs> surely there's going to be some more numbers. And obviously you can't talk about timings or anything, but it has been two years really since GPT-3. And you've um, obviously Dolly has only come, the second one has come out. Um, can we expect, do you think, anytime soon or in the next year or two, another iteration? You know, we never talk about things before they're ready. And it just comes down to that. In the world of AI and research too, is that it is Dolly, when that, that got released, I think we, we brought people in and we have iterations of that. That got released maybe a month after uh, I think we'd probably the model finished training. You know, we published a paper using talking about some of the concepts early on. So these are things like we just we just don't know. We often just have no idea. Like we might, oh, we want to get this, try to do something here. But in that time, though, uh, one of the things that happened with just a couple months ago is we, we released a couple new methods. Uh, we updated some. We updated GPT three, and actually, like we went from the two thousand tokens to the four thousand tokens, which is kind of phenomenal. And we also added things like edit, where you can go in there and insert stuff in between, so you can have a passage here and a passage below it, and you can say add something in between there, and it will work backwards and forwards from there. Which to me is such a phenomenal capability when you really think about what that can do. Because previously you would just give it the text and say, okay, complete this. Now it could go fill in there. So you could give it a passage and say, okay, add more detail here or do this. 
So those capabilities right there, I think we announced it, we talked about them, but it didn't get quite the attention that I think personally those things should get because of what they can do is for if you're a writer. You can actually put text in there and then say, okay, rewrite this in the first person point of view, and it will change it, you know, the point of view. And so these capabilities by themselves, if we had said, oh, this is some new special model or whatever, people would be like, oh my, and they are new models, but they'd be like, oh, that's really cool. It can do this now. It's like, well, it can do it right now, so... Yeah, actually, that's a good point because um, PseudoWrite did introduce a new thing and you could type in a line and then you'd say, make it more horror and it would yeah. rewrite it in a more horror way or whatever, a sci-fi way. Yeah, that was based upon the edit uh, functionality we added. There you go. Well, maybe it's just because it didn't have like a new number, a new release, but I guess as you say, it's, mm. there's iterative changes and then there's a big release, a big, and, a big change. Yeah, and you know, part of it is that we are a research company first. And so that means too, how we approach things is that we don't want to beat a drum in the way you would, if it were like a new iPhone or something, generally speaking, because AI, we try to be cautious about how we do stuff and we will do these incremental things and say, Hey, look what we've done. This is the capability. Now the instruct models that I mentioned before, that was a pretty big deal because that helped you basically guide a model better, made it more reliable and not giving you unwanted outputs. And so, a lot of the important things are going to be these incremental developments. Right. We're almost out of time, but I just had one more question. On your blog, you wrote, I think AI is going to upend everything in entertainment and not just my little corner of publishing. So since you come from TV as well and magic and shows and everything, how, how will it do that? How will it upend everything? I'll give you an example. I don't know if you watched the show like Mandalorian, but like at the end of it, they had they did use CG in like the first season. At the end of it, they they CG'd Mark Hamill's younger face onto an actor, and it was not really. And, and the, everybody that works on the show works really hard, and everybody does VFX, not to be dismissive, but it wasn't really the best effect. It wasn't really the strongest way they could have done that because AI deep fake technology had been way more advanced. But it was a thing where the entertainment industry can be slow to catch on to things. And, and I'd made a joke to my wife like, hey, you know, in two days, a YouTuber is going to upload a better version of this using an AI technology. And I kid you not, two days later, a YouTuber by the name of Shamook uploaded a better version of that. Uh, and ILM, to their credit, hired him. He now works for them and helps them do you know, that sort of stuff. But AI, there's a lot of incredible stuff out there right now that people don't even realize. I have friends in VFX who I'm like, why are you doing it this way? Like, well, that's what the system does. I'm like, there is a free code library that does this easily. And there's a lot of these things where like removing backgrounds from images, right? Your services, mm. you can go pay for it. It's actually a free code you can download and run on your computer if you just have a little bit of a technical capability. But people don't know that and people are paying for these things. And so I think when it comes to entertainment, I think there's a lot of things in the pipeline where when I wrote my first novel with a publisher, I had the benefit of a wonderful editor, Hannah Wood, who was at HarperCollins at the time. And that I learned so much from having somebody really smart go through and edit stuff. When you think about when everybody gets that ability to collaborate, whether you're a screenwriter that gets an AI, to not write it for you, but tell you like, oh, I think this should be more punchier, this should be there. I think the stuff is going to get better. And I think that probably the pipeline is going to shrink. The number of people that are going to be needed to make something is going to get fewer. But then the opportunities for people to create more stuff will increase. So thinking about that, then, just to leave people with a, a glimmer of hope in this AI future, what kind of attitude do we need to have? Uh, be curious and understand that 
Every time there's been a new tool, there was the fear. The word processor, people were afraid, well, great, everybody's going to write. What happened? Not really. The big disruptive sort of things that happened, like the biggest disruptions of publishing were ebooks and then things like, you know, I'm a big fan of the Kindle Unlimited and that marketplace there because I think that's like phenomenal, like, like just the ability for an indie to go put there and compete with everybody else on sort of the same level. I think that these things are, if you say, if I said I only want to do things the way I did them 10 years ago, I wouldn't be where I was now. And I went through being a person who worked in entertainment and cruise ships and stuff and being able to do big illusion shows. Then when watching the cruise lines and resorts go through recessions and not being able to pay to bring big acts like that to creating books and videos for magicians, then watching online piracy completely erase that, you know, and just transitioning from point to point, getting into publishing when print publishing is on its decline, and then working with a wonderful publisher they understand digital. So you, we're creatives because we like change, usually the change that we bring about. But if we embrace the change that's around us and see opportunity, I think we're going to be in an incredible place. And it's not... AI needs creative people. It needs, like, if we just released Dolly and we, we brought in a bunch of artists to work with this and just experiment with it, if we didn't bring them into it, it wasn't going to be as exciting or neat as it is. GPT-3, they brought me in. I got to be as a writer and go work with this. So everybody listen, it needs you. Like, AI is expanding where it's going to need creative people who look at this stuff and figure out how to use it to create new things. And it's not going to be as exciting without you. Oh, thank you so much. So where can people find you and your books online? Uh, basically, if you just go, I'm uh, published by Thomas and Mercer, which is an Amazon company. So if you go to Amazon, type in Andrew Main, easiest sort of way to see what I have there. If you go to andrewmain.com, I usually have a list of my most recent books there. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Andrew. That was great. Thank you so much. So I hope you found the interview with Andrew interesting. And if you want to know more about how you can use AI for writing, images, marketing, translation, audio, and more, as well as the ethical usage of AI, problems and opportunities, then check out my course, The AI Assisted Author, at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. On the next episode, it's back to craft and business as I talk to Claire McIntosh about writing twists and also about book marketing as a traditionally published author. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.